Well, it's been a great, great privilege and joy for me to spend time with you this week, and I hope it's been a really encouraging week for you. You've made it through to Friday morning. Well done. And we have a bit of a tradition on Friday morning. I know that you're feeling weary. The chances are you're feeling weary. You've probably not had a total amount of sleep this week that your body probably is crying out for. Um, so we do have just a little tradition because we don't want to waste our final sort of time together. So uh, the last session of AnCon is affectionately sometimes known as StandCon. Um, so if you're feeling tired, then what you should do is stand up. Now, you don't want to distract those around you, so my suggestion is if you are feeling tired, stand up and just move to the side. Just move, move to the side or, or at the back and just stand for a while and continue to listen and engage and take your Bible with you and keep engaging with what's going on. And if you want to then go and sit back, sit back down, sit, sit down somewhere easy, don't sort of push past everybody or just stay standing. But basically, take responsibility for this time and get the most out of it and you can enjoy StandCon too. Normally, we, I mean, some years we've had a lot of people standing. Um, but that's okay, I don't mind. See, look, they're already going up the back. Well done, good on you, standing up. I'm not gonna ask how much sleep they had, it's probably very, very little. Um, so, let's get into it. It's really great that we spend this time together. I'm just gonna lead us in prayer as we turn to God's Word. Father, thank you that you have given us this week and just the feast of your Word, and we pray that this last time together you would again speak to us as you've promised through your word in the scriptures, that you would encourage us and challenge us and move us so that we might live lives that please you while we wait for the glorious end you have promised when the Lord Jesus returns. Amen. One of the staff was sharing with me that uh, he phoned home this week just to see how things were going at home. And... Uh, one of their kids was, feeling, was a bit sick this week. So, you know, a small child, so feeling sick, woke up, feeling a bit distressed, crying. And so his wife, the child's mother, comes in and just says, oh, like, tries to comfort the child. And the child, in her distress, just says, when is he coming home? Or when is he coming back? I think it was. When is he coming back? And so... The mum said, oh, well, Daddy's coming back on Friday. No, no, not Daddy. Jesus, when is he coming back? <laughs> Just the, the, uh, the longing for fixing up what even Daddy can't fix up. He can't make me feel better, but Jesus can make me feel better. That, that'd be truth. That'd be truth. I hope that this week has made you long a little bit more, really I hope and pray a lot more, for the coming of the Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. Of course, some people don't say, think about his coming with longing. They hear the news of his coming with scepticism. This all seems just crazy talk that Jesus is going to come back and all things being made. They're, just, they're deeply sceptical about this. And this has, been, this has been true ever since Jesus ascended to his father 2,000 years ago. People have been deeply sceptical about this news that he's going to return. You can see it in the New Testament. So we're going to start this morning 
Um, you pretty much can abandon any headings that are there in your booklet for this talk. Uh, I do have three headings that if you're taking notes, and I advise you, especially with StandCon and the falling asleep that happens, um, I'd advise you to take some notes this morning. It might be helpful for you. Three headings. The first one is, where is his coming? Which is a quote from 2 Peter chapter 3 that we're going to look at in a moment. Where is his coming? This, and we're going to spend most of our time under that heading. The second heading will be longing for his coming. And the third heading, which will be very short, is filled with hope for his coming. Where is his coming? Longing for his coming and filled with hope for his coming. But let's have a look at 2 Peter chapter 3. So open it up in your Bible, it'd be really helpful, or call it up on your phone, you're going to need it in front of you. We're going to work through this whole chapter, just bit by bit, and sometimes I'm going to branch out and look at other parts of Scripture as well. But we're going to work through 2 Peter chapter 3, paragraph by paragraph, as a framework for thinking about Jesus' return, and try to wrap up this week together. 2 Peter chapter 3. Let me read to you the first four verses. Hopefully you got them there in front of you. Dear friends, writes Peter, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets, that is in the Old Testament, and the command given by our Lord and Saviour through your apostles. He's asking them to remember what's been written in the Old Testament and then what has been communicated as the fulfilment of that by the Lord Jesus, through his chosen apostles. We have that testimony recorded for us in the New Testament. And then he says, verse 3, First of all, you must understand that in the last days, that's what we're in, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, Where is this coming, he promised, ever since our fathers died? Everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. These scoffers have heard the news of Jesus' return and they're saying, well, hasn't happened yet. When, when is this coming? Where is this coming that you guys are talking about? And as a result of that scepticism, they are following their own evil desires. There's no need to change my behaviour, no need... I mean, it's just, it seems like an idle fairy tale. In fact, their conclusion there in verse 4 was, nothing has ever changed. Everything has been the same since the creation of the world. It just keeps rolling on. No, there's been no massive intervention. There's no, and now you're talking as though there's going to be one. Well, this this is, just seems crazy. Well, look at Peter's response, verse 5. But they deliberately forget... That long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. He's referring back to the account of creation in Genesis chapter 1. And he continues, By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. Talking about the flood, which you read about in the early chapters of Genesis. That is, they're saying everything has continued since the beginning of creation. There has been no massive intervention. Just Things just keep rolling on the same year after year after year. And Peter said, actually, they've, they've forgotten about the flood. <laughs> they've forgotten that actually that's not true. They've forgotten that there have been moments where God comes and fulfills his promises and he comes in rescue 
through judgment. They've forgotten that fact. In fact, he says, they deliberately forget. They're not ignorant of the flood story. They know the flood story. They're not thinking much about it. They deliberately forget, actually, that God does come to rescue through judgment and has done in the past, for example, at the flood. And we could add many more, couldn't we? We could add the Exodus. We could add God's, all of God's actions with Old Testament Israel and, of course, in the coming of the Lord Jesus. And then he continues, verse 7, By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly people. Just as God came in the flood, and yes, rescue came through judgment, Noah and his family were rescued, whilst those who were sceptical, those who did evil in the Lord's sight, whilst they were judged, now he says, this world, this age, is also reserved for judgment, a day of judgment, and an ultimate destruction of those who refuse to worship the one true living God who reject his word and way and reject his son Jesus as their king. He continues in verse 8. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. He's still trying to address this scepticism about the Lord's return. He hasn't returned yet. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, that is the Lord Jesus, a day is like a thousand years. Just think about that. A day is like a thousand years for Jesus. You might think, well, that day went pretty quickly. (laughs) For Jesus, with his agenda and his perception, it feels sometimes like a thousand years waiting for someone to respond to him, waiting for somebody to acknowledge him. A day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. Now, it's been 2,000 years since the Lord Jesus was raised and ascended to his Father, and we might think, that's a very long time. Where is this coming that he's promised? Well, a thousand years, just like a day. It is not that long. It is not very long. And then he gives an important sort of insight into why Jesus has not returned yet. Verse 9, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. There's the answer in the Bible as to why Jesus hasn't come back yet. You hear people say crazy things about why the Lord Jesus hasn't yet returned. Oh, we haven't set up a political nation of Israel in the way he... What? What? That, that, that's not the Bible. Why, why hasn't Jesus returned yet? Well, there's the answer. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He's waiting for people to come to repentance. He's being patient. In fact, if you go back to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 5, if you just flick back a few pages or scroll back a few pages, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 5, you read there that they will have to give an account to him, Jesus, who is ready to judge the living and the dead. 
Jesus isn't sort of still not quite ready to come back. No, Jesus is ready. He's ready to judge the living and the dead. And the only reason he hasn't hit the go button is because he's being patient with us, patient with humanity, giving us an opportunity to come back to him in repentance faith so that we might be rescued rather than those destined for hell. He's being patient with you. And then he concludes, verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. It's a very unusual sort of simile to use. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. Peter didn't make it up. Peter got it from the Lord Jesus himself. The Lord Jesus used this analogy, which we're going to look at in a moment. What does he mean, though, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief? Well, it means that he will come unannounced. Thieves, I don't know if you've ever had anything stolen. I, by God's grace, I've not had much stolen from me in this life, though I did when I was in about, when I, was, I think I was 14, someone stole my bike. They, they broke into our house at night, like I used to store my bike locked up under the house. It was locked up under the house. They, they jumped the fence. They, they broke open the lock. They went under our house while we were all asleep, took my bike, presumably threw it over the fence, climbed over, and I never saw my bike again, my green bike. I really liked that bike. <laughs> but you know what? They didn't tell us they were coming. They didn't drop a note sort of in a letterbox the day before. I say, by the way, we'll be dropping over probably about 2 a.m. Uh, we're going to break in, take the bike, just to let you know. Like, no thief, who knows what they're doing, uh, no thief tells you, uh, no, thieves come unannounced. Thieves catch you unaware. It will be a surprise. The day of the Lord will come as a surprise. You won't be expecting it. He will come unannounced. I wonder what state you'll be in when he arrives. Uh, I'm going to ask Jenny to share a story because she's got a story about when she thought Jesus was arriving unannounced. What's the story, Jenny? Um, so, you know, it says it, it, that Jesus is going to return unannounced and uh, like a thief in the night. Anyway, we have five children. Having five children is very tiring. And when our fifth child was a baby, I um, was very, 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 very tired, like super tired. And um, the house we were living in, in the middle of the night, and I hadn't had great sleep, this really bright car light shone in the um, upstairs window. And all I remember, I was half asleep. I thought, no, Jesus, not tonight. I am really tired. <laughs> and I thought there's like a lot of praising and there's like singing and it's going to be, I'm too tired. So that, that was my response. So Yes, talk about being caught unawares. I will be. I was feeling too weary for the return of Jesus. Thankfully, uh, he had. He didn't. He didn't come back. So I had time to <laughs> go back to sleep. So yeah. 
Isn't it true that you're slightly triggered when we sing some songs here that talk about... Yeah, there's a lot of lines, if you notice, about singing forever, we'll be praising forever. I think, oh, that is like a lot of work. You know, I love singing, I'm all for it, but that sounds like an eternity of, like, singing. Anyway. Anyway. So... The Lord Jesus is going to come like a thief in the night, unexpected. It'll be a surprise. You'll be unaware. Now, as I said, Peter didn't make this up. He got this from uh, Jesus himself. So turn back with me to Matthew chapter 24. We're just going to sort of leave 1 Peter 3 from, uh, 2 Peter 3 for a moment. We'll come back there. But turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24 and 25 is a long section where Jesus is talking about his return. And so it's really helpful here, and this is where Peter gets some of his content from, from the Lord Jesus. We're going to jump in at Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. Let me first of all read verse 36 to 44. We're going to sort of work through this section together. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. He says, No one knows about that day or hour. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. He's talking about the day of his return. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage, up to the day day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming to steal his bike, sorry, it doesn't have that, I just added that a little bit there. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. No one knows the day or hour that he will return. If someone says to you they do know, they're not just not telling the truth. No one knows the day or hour he will return. But Jesus' message is clear. Keep watch and be ready. Because one day that trumpet will sound and it will all be on. Now, Paddy's got a story about a trumpet and being ready. Paddy, what's your story about the trumpet? Uh, one of my children uh, was uh, asleep in bed in the morning and uh, they were quite young. They heard the sound of a trumpet and they thought that the Lord was returning. So they jumped up and stood out of their bed, next to their bed, waiting, ready for the Lord to take them to the new heavens and the new earth. <laughs> they stood there for some time and started to get a bit worried because nothing was happening. And they were greatly relieved when they came downstairs and saw that we were all still there as well. And we realised it was the neighbour had been practising their trumpet playing. (laughs) 
I liked that they were comforted that, well, even if they missed out, at least you guys missed out and you all missed out together. <laughs> I don't actually think there will be a trumpet sound, by the way. I think that's another example of apocalyptic imagery. Because throughout the Old Testament, at various times, when God comes to rescue through judgment, the Israelites blow trumpets. Like the trumpet is a sound of, here comes God in victory. And so I think it's a, it's a metaphor to describe... I mean, I might be wrong. Maybe there will be this enormous universal trumpet blast. But but I suspect that it's a moment of imagery rather than a literal trumpet blast. But let's keep reading and to see then, because the question as you go on then through this passage is, what will it mean to be ready? If, we're, if Jesus says you've got to be ready, keep watch, what does it mean to be ready? And then Jesus gives a number of parables which describe what it means to be ready. So let's have a look at these parables he shares to help his disciples The first parable is chapter 24, starting verse 45. He says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant? I take it you want to be a faithful and wise servant of the Lord Jesus, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of his. Who then is the faithful and wise servant, whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household, to give them food, their food, at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We should be doing what the Lord, our Master, has told us to do. Don't be foolish and ignore his command as though he's not returning. We want to be faithful and wise servants of the Lord Jesus which means we need to be busy doing the things that he has given us to do. Not being lazy, not acting as though he's not returning. Let's keep going. Chapter 25, verse 1. Jesus says, At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. So this is a a picture of a wedding. And those who are celebrating the wedding, there's, there's 10 of these women who are going out to sort of greet the bridegroom and usher him through to the wedding feast. Five of them, verse 2, were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy. And fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. 
The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore, Jesus says, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. I take it Jesus' point here is, you've got to be prepared for a long wait. This is not a sprint, the Christian life. Waiting for Jesus' return requires endurance and patience. Yes, it's true. He says, I am coming soon. So we have that sure hope. But with the day, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. He's not slow as some understand slowness. Living for him might take a while. Mind you, he is powerful and strong and he will give you all the energy you need, but you need endurance and patience. You need to live for him with persistence until he returns. You need to be prepared for a long wait. Let's keep reading the next parable that Jesus gives, verse 14. Again, he says, It'll be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and I went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What Jesus is saying is, I am entrusting you 
with my stuff. It's my stuff. I'm entrusting it to you. And I think that includes things like the money in your bank account. I've often said to people, when you take out your, you know, your, your piece of plastic, your card, or the card that's now on your phone and not a piece of plastic, but you know what I mean. You take it out, it's got a name on it. It's got your name on it. That's, that's fake news because it's not your money. It's money that belongs to the Lord Jesus. He's entrusted it to you to steward for him. But it's not just your money, it's your possessions. It's not your guitar. It's not your car. It's not your house. Oh, it's got your name on the title deed and you're the one paying the mortgage. But no, it belongs to the Lord Jesus. It's his stuff. And that degree that you got says your name at the top, your great transcript, HD, HD, or D, oh, oh, terrible. Oh, HD, 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 or... Well, maybe you're going, no, that's not me. P, 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 (laughs) conceded pass. (laughs) Yes. Oh, fail. It says your name, but actually, you know what? That great achievement, that's actually something that Jesus has entrusted to you, those capacities, those abilities. You're stewarding them for him, not for your own glory. The opportunities he gives you, you might think, oh, I can get to travel, or I can do this, or, you know, because of my background and my culture, I can, I've got all of these opportunities in life to pursue all of these different things. Those opportunities are his gift to you, to steward for him. It is all his. The things, the capacities, the opportunities, it's all his. The question is, how are we stewarding it for him? Because we will answer to him. We are accountable to him for how we've stewarded, stewarded what is actually his. And our goal, I take it, is to be a good and faithful steward. To have him say at that day, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. That's what we long for, isn't it? That he would say that to us on that final day. But of course, we don't want to be the wicked and lazy servant. It's interesting to me that he's lazy. The opposite of faithful here is lazy. Someone who can't be bothered. Someone who just takes the easy option. He could have taken his master's money and just given it to the bankers and got it back with the interest. How hard would that be? Not hard at all. The others actually took it and invested it and used it to make more money. That was work. This guy was super lazy. He couldn't even just bother to take it to the bank and at least get a bit of interest. He just dug a hole in the ground and stuck it in, put some dirt on it. When the master came back, he just dug it up. There you go. Completely lazy option. He was just suiting himself. He was not actually trying to serve his Lord. We don't want to be that person. Because the outcome for that person was not good. In this parable, the one who had more was then given even more. In the new age to come. The one who had but a little, even what he had, was taken away in the age to come 
in the end, he is thrown out into the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is a picture of God's judgment. That's a picture of hell. Will we prove to be faithful with the things that God has entrusted to us? Are you going to seek to use the things that God has given to you? Money, possessions, opportunities, capacities. Are you going to seek to use those just for you? That is fundamentally lazy. Or are you going to use them for the Lord Jesus? For his purposes, for his kingdom. I know that you are a God has given you many, many gifts and opportunities. I mean, you're at Sydney University. That's a privilege in itself. It means that you are very able. This is not to go to your head. I'm just saying he's given you a lot. You are rich in these things. Don't use those riches that are a gift from him just for you, selfishly. Use them for his kingdom. Use them for his purposes. So, yes, you could become a teacher in a very, very nice independent school here in Sydney where they will pay you a stack of money, way more than what you would earn in a normal school setting. You could do that. You got an education degree from Sydney University. That's pretty good. Like, that'll get you in the door. What's more, you're clever, you're committed. Like, or you could go and serve in a less reached, less resourced place overseas, in a school somewhere else, where you know what? You are not going to get the kudos. You are definitely not going to get the money. And no one will have ever heard of the school you're serving in. How are you going to use the opportunities and the gifts that God's given you? For you or for his kingdom? You could be cut, and I can repeat that for every degree, Right? That applies to being a vet. That applies to being an engineer. That applies for your arts degree. Like it applies across the board. How are you going to use the opportunities for him? Now, it's not that the Lord Jesus is saying to you, you must go and do these things. He's not. He's giving you freedom and choice. You have genuine freedom here. But the challenge is, will you... Steward the things he's given you to meet obvious needs in the world, gospel needs in the world. Will you go as a Christian to a place less reached, less resourced, so that, yeah, you might work in your profession, but you can actually be a Christian in a church with all of the training, the opportunities you've had, and bring that to bear into people's lives? Would you do that for Jesus? He's not, he's not saying you have to. But that's certainly an opportunity in front of you, isn't it? Would you even think about giving up your profession and throwing yourself into gospel ministry full-time? Jesus is not saying you have to do that. But he may well have given you the capacity and the ability and the opportunity to do it. But he leaves the choice to you. How are you going to steward the things that he's given you? He gives you freedom. He's not going to love you more if you become a Howie. He's not going to love you more if you decide to become a missionary. He loves you because he loves you, because he sent Jesus to die for you. He just loves you. That's not going to change. The question is, what's it going to mean for you to be a good and faithful servant of his? Jesus continues on into uh, chapter 25, verse 31. 
I, might, uh, I wonder if you sort of noticed on the way through, there's been a bit of an emphasis in all of the parables so far about um, the master going away for a long period of time, after a long period of time. This is Jesus trying to prepare us for the wait while he returns. And then this final parable then moves on to try to talk about what does it actually involve to live for Jesus, to be a good steward of these things. So rather than me just read out this next parable, which is the rest of chapter 25, you're actually going to listen to it. You're going to listen to it uh, from this particular guy, Keith Green, who's put this parable pretty much word for word for music to music. So I want you to keep your Bible open, keep it in front of you, and listen as he takes us through it. something to eat? Lord, why were you thirsty? Can't remember. And we gave you drink. Huh. When were you naked, Lord? And we clothed you. Or Lord, when were you a stranger? And we invited you in. I mean, we invited lots of people in. But Lord, I'd never forget that face. Lord, when were you sick and we visited you? Or in prison and we came to you? Lord, tell us. Inasmuch as you've done it to the least of my brethren, you've done it unto me. Oh, yes. Inasmuch as you've done it to the very least of my brethren, oh, you've done it. You've done it unto me. Enter into your rest.
shall turn to those on his left. The goats. Depart from me, you cursed ones, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was naked, out in the cold, in exposure, and you sent me away. I was a stranger and I knocked at your door. But you didn't open, you told me to go away. I was sick, racked in pain upon my bed, and I begged and prayed and pleaded that you'd come, but you didn't. I was in prison. you'd come. I heard your programs on the radio and read your magazines, but you never came. Depart from me. Lord, there must be some mistake. Where? Lord, uh, when? I mean, when were you hungry, Lord? And we didn't give you something to eat. And Lord, when were you thirsty and we didn't give you a drink? I mean, that's not fair. Well, would you like something now? One of the angels want to go out and get the Lord a hamburger and a Coke. Yeah. Oh, you're not hungry. Uh, yeah, I, I lost my appetite too. Uh, Lord, uh, Lord, when were you naked? I mean... That's not fair either, Lord. We didn't even know what size you wear. Well, well Lord, what, when were you a stranger, Lord? You weren't one of those creepy people that used to come to the door, were you? Oh, Lord, that wasn't our ministry, Lord. We just didn't feel led, you know? Well, Lord, uh, Lord, when were you sick? What did you have anyway? Well, at least it wasn't fatal. Well, it was? Oh, I'm sorry, Lord, I would have sent you a card. Lord, uh, just one last thing we want to know. Uh, when were you in prison, Lord? Lord, what were you in for anyway? I had a friend in Leavenworth. As much as you've not done it to the least of my brethren, you've not done it unto me. And as much as you've not done it to the least of my brethren, you've not done it unto me. To
depart from me. And these shall go away into everlasting fire. But the righteous into eternal life. And my friends, the only difference between the sheep and the goats, according to the scripture, is what they did and didn't do. He makes the statement at the end there, the only difference between the sheep and the goats, according to the scripture, is in what they did and didn't do. I think I'd nuance that a little bit to say that our life, as we saw earlier this week, our life reflects the genuineness or the fakeness of our faith. And a this, is, this passage here is one of Jesus' many warnings against an, a life of empty faith, a life without the faith, the, the acts, the deeds, the works that come from a genuine trust in him. That is the difference here. But we can't avoid the confrontational nature of what Jesus is saying here one of the ways that being a good steward of all that God has entrusted to us is we seek to love our sisters and brothers. We love our sisters and brothers in the Lord. We can't say we're, we're a recipient of the love of Christ and we seek to love Christ and not love our sisters and brothers in their needs. It's a call to love as Jesus' disciples. Turn with me then back to one, uh, 2 Peter chapter 3. We've had that little excursus really looking at the idea of the Son of Man coming as a thief and what it means to be ready. Peter, continuing on, picks up the same idea. Let's jump back in to where we're up to in 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to start at verse 10. And we'll continue on from there through to verse 14 or so. Verse 10, Peter writes, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? His answer, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless and blameless and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. So two things he says here. First of all, live holy and godly lives. That's how we make ourselves ready for the return of Jesus. Live holy and godly lives. He says there in verse 14, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless and at peace with him. So holiness is key. You can say see this same message throughout the New Testament. Uh, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, we read, And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, 
we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. We're to live holy lives because Jesus is coming back. But also, we're to look forward with longing, much like that story I shared at the beginning of the child who says, but when is he coming back? Look at verse 12 there. Look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Or again in verse 13, in keeping with his promise, we're looking forward to a new heavens and a new earth. We have longing, holiness, longing, and thirdly, we're to speed its coming, verse, 13, verse 12, as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. It's a funny phrase, how can I speed up Jesus' return? It's not really in my power, is it? What does it mean to speed its coming? I think the way we speed its coming is remembering why Jesus hasn't come back yet. He hasn't come back yet because we saw in this passage he's being patient. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but people to come back in repentance to him. The way we speed his coming is by aligning ourselves with his purpose there. His purpose is that people might come to repentance in him, both ourselves and others. We speed his coming, we speed his return by making sure we are living holy lives before him and making sure those around us know of his gospel and have the opportunity to repent and be saved. That's how we speed his coming. So that's under the first heading of where is his coming. Second heading, longing for his coming. How do we keep an eternal perspective? In your notes there, why don't you turn back to page 44? Turn back to page 44. I skipped over this the other night. I decided to hold it for today. When we set our hope fully on the life to come, it transforms our perspective on the present. If you have eternity in mind, it changes how you think about the now. Things don't look the same when you filter them through eternity. The Apostle Paul talked about this quite a lot, especially as it related to suffering. Have a look on your page there on page 44 from 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and, verse, and chapter 5. Paul writes there, We know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. So then the question is, okay, we know this truth that we're going to be raised with Jesus in glory. How does that truth, that hope, shape my perspective on the present? So he continues, verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. So outwardly, he's saying things are sort of getting worse over time. Your body starts to decay. Maybe you experience more and more suffering in this world. Outwardly, we're wasting away. But he says, inwardly, we're actually growing stronger each day. How? That's what hope does. It makes him stronger internally, even as externally, things are getting worse. And then he says, verse 17, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Now, Paul's troubles, when he wrote this, were not insignificant. Suffering, persecution, shipwrecks, 
the, the mysterious thorn in his side that he sort of pleaded with God to take away three separate times. His troubles were not actually on any worldly sense sort of minimal or, or low, low level. But in the light of eternity and the eternal glory that Jesus has promised, those significant troubles become relatively light in comparison to the weightiness of the glory that awaits. The troubles are momentary, even though they might be hard, compared to the eternal nature of the glory that God has in store. So the, the, the present troubles and struggles, he says, become manageable. Do you sometimes have that feeling where the troubles that you're facing do not feel manageable? They start to overwhelm you. Whether it's difficulty in a relationship or it's wrestles with your own illnesses or whether it's the death of a loved one, do you sometimes feel overwhelmed by your troubles? What makes the troubles manageable turns, turns them into light and momentary is the weight of eternal glory that God has in store for us. Indeed, he says here, the troubles are achieving an eternal glory. That is by him continuing to follow Jesus through these troubles. And as he grows in faith and grows in hope, he's being transformed more and more into the glorious likeness of the Lord Jesus. And so then Paul shares his strategy, his strategy for dealing with hard things in the present. Verse 18. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, he's not talking about that he lives in a tent, he's saying that his body is a tent. If the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. That is, you have an eternal resurrection body to look forward to. That does not mean that all of his, that his present life is all fun now. He acknowledges the difficulty of his present strugglings because the next verse there, meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we're clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we're in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed. We wish to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And so he ends with this reassurance. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Do you see how there, having the eternal perspective transforms his experience, how he processes the present, how he, particularly how he deals with suffering and difficult things. He fixes his eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. He groans, but his future is secure. This eternal perspective doesn't just apply to difficult things like suffering or grief. It applies actually to everything. 
Have a look at what he wrote. It's still there on that same page. What, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 29 to 31, same section of the notes. He says, What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it was not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world and its present form is passing away. Frankly, some of Paul's advice here sounds very irresponsible. It sounds irresponsible, it sounds lacking in love, and it sounds heartless. Should I, Rowan, henceforth live as though not married to Jenny? Well, I mean, that's what he says, doesn't he? From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Oh, I'm just going to go and do a heck of a lot of bike riding then. That's what I'm going to be doing. I just... <laughs> I'll just now live as though I'm not married, I guess. Is that? Should I really not be happy anymore? Should I not be sad anymore? Well, you've got to read this passage in the light of the rest of the Bible. The rest of the Bible is very clear. Husbands, sacrificially love your wives. Okay, so I won't be going on so many bike riding trips. Husbands, sacrificially love your wives. It tells us to mourn with those who mourn. It tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice. So what is Paul then really saying here? I think he's saying, sit lightly with the realities of this world. Sit lightly with them, the good and the bad. Sit lightly. Yes, you might be married. Wives, husbands, Sit lightly with your tears. Sit lightly with toasters and toboggans and whatever other possessions you have in the world, right? Sit lightly with these things because it will all pass away. Those things won't be in the new creation. That grief won't be in the new creation. Our marriages won't be in the new creation. All these things will pass away because this world is passing away and Jesus is coming soon. So don't become engrossed with these temporary things. The life that is truly life is still to come. Keep eternity in focus. There's a picture there in your outline of Arthur Stace. He's a guy in a hat sort of bending down. He's got the word eternity at his feet. I don't know if you know the story of Arthur Stace. Arthur Stace was born in the late uh, 19th century. He was an uneducated man, lived in Sydney. He was basically illiterate. He could barely write his own name. However, in 1930, at the, the same year the EU was established, by coincidence, but in 1930... At the age of 45, Arthur Stace was at St Barnabas Broadway Church just down the road from Sydney Uni and he became a Christian. He heard the gospel and became a Christian. He was so struck by God's promises about eternity when the Lord Jesus returns that he decided to, to write the word eternity wherever he could. He was illiterate. He could barely write his own name. 
but he learnt to write eternity in that beautiful copper plate that you can see there at his foot. So each morning at 4am, he would get up, take his chalk and write eternity on the footpath or on a walk wherever he could around Sydney. He did that for 27 years without anyone in Sydney knowing who it was. No one knew who, who wrote. People would turn up to work in the city and there would be eternity written outside their building. They'd be going to the movies or the theatre and there's eternity written on the wall. Who? And this was known right across Sydney. Who writes eternity? For 27 years, no one, not a soul knew except Arthur Stace. And then he was discovered and he kept writing it. In the end, he did it for 35 years. And the estimates are that he wrote it half a million times across Sydney. Why would he do that? Get up at 4am because he wants to put eternity in front of the faces of everyone living in Sydney. He wants them to think about the promises of God and the Lord Jesus Christ and consider heaven and hell, the reality of judgment and the glories that God promises in the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants to get it in front of their faces. And he did for 35 years. I want you to compare the picture of hope that Arthur Stace brought to the city of Sydney with the message of Mark Manson. Uh, Mark Manson is, I'm just going to call it up here on my phone, uh, Mark Manson is a writer and he's written a book called Everything is Effed. I'm not going to actually say it, right? Everything is effed. That's the title of his book, great. And then its subtitle is A Book About Hope. Okay, so let me read to you some of what he says. He says, If I worked at Starbucks, instead of writing people's names on their coffee cup, I'd write the following. One day, you and everyone you love will die. And he keeps writing. And beyond a small group of people, for an extremely brief period of time, little of what you say or do will ever matter. This is the uncomfortable truth of life. And everything you think or do is but an elaborate avoidance of it. We are inconsequential cosmic dust, bumping and milling about on a tiny blue speck. We imagine our own importance. We invent our purpose. We are nothing. Enjoy your effing coffee. Then he continues. But seriously... How could you tell someone in good conscience to have a nice day while knowing that all their thoughts and motivations stem from a never-ending need to avoid the inherent meaninglessness of human existence? He says, The universe doesn't care if the forests burn or the ice melts or the waters rise or the air simmers or we all get vaporised by a superior alien race. You care... You care and you desperately convince yourself that because you care, it must have some great cosmic meaning behind it. 
You care because deep down, you need to feel the sense of importance in order to avoid the uncomfortable truth, to avoid the incomprehensibility of your existence, to avoid being crushed by the weight of your own material insignificance. And you, like me, like everyone, then project that imagined sense of importance onto the world around you because it gives you hope. Something needs to matter because without something mattering, then there's no reason to go on living. Pretty exciting stuff, isn't it? Pretty, pretty hope. I want you to compare that bleak vision with so many clever words with Arthur Stace, who has literally one word he can write. Eternity. Where is hope to be found? It's to be found in the gospel about the Lord Jesus Christ, in the eternity that he promises. That is the end of the great stream of God's sovereignty, the great river of God's plans and purposes that capture you, your friends, Sydney University, this city, the whole of human history caught up in that river of his plans and purposes to that great glorious end. That is the good news of the gospel. That is the good news of the gospel that speaks to those who are trapped by their slavery to death, who are in fear of their insignificance. And what is this? What That is the answer they need. That is the good news they need to hear. That's what your friends need. That's what your family need, right? That's what our university needs. So we've got these guests coming to EU public meetings, you know, international guests coming this week, Rebe- Rebecca McLaughlin, Rachel Gills, and um, Musa Ghazal. What a great opportunity to have our non-Christian friends who are lost without Jesus' grace start to hear something of the good news. Be a little bit bold this week. Invite them along. We've got opportunities in weeks four and five to reach our friends. What gospel opportunities could you create so that they might hear something of Jesus' good news in the gospel? Don't leave them to Mark Manson, where the great uncomfortable truth is you're nothing. Get over it. That's not the message of the one true living God who made us and sustained us. No. You are his child. In Christ, you can be redeemed and have a great eternal future. That's what they need to hear. So finally, filled with hope for his coming, I want to point out to you there, I'm not sure what page it is on in your outline, but two prayers at the end of the outline for talk six. Two prayers in the New Testament. I'm just going to finish with this. Paul prays that God's people would know the hope that he has for them, that they would be filled with hope and then live out that hope in faith and love. These are good prayers to pray. Good prayers to pray for others. Good prayers to pray for yourself. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. 
that your eyes of your heart may be enlightened so you grab hold and see that hope. Or in Romans chapter 15, verse 13, he prays, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you a moment to fill in the response wheel there, something that you're thankful for, a question that you have, a response you'd like to make, something from this that you could share with somebody else, maybe something new, a new thought that you've had. I'm just going to give you a few minutes for that. Then I'm going to lead us in those two prayers and then we're going to sing. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, we thank you for the great hope that you have given us in the Lord Jesus, your great promises to us. And we ask that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened so that we might know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of the glorious inheritance you have gifted us amongst your holy people. We pray that you might fill us with all joy and peace as we trust in you so that we may overflow with hope as your people by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we pray, Father, you would preserve us in these things until the Lord Jesus comes. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.